here on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems underlying our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for staying coherent and connected in a world seemingly engineered to keep us confused and alone. We are neither. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, complexity theorist, host of the Jim Rutt Show podcast series, and former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute, Jim Rutt. If the glue that holds game A together is competition for status through material possessions and positional goods, the uh, status around game B will be conviviality. Who knows how to have a good time, mother... Jim will be sharing his idea for a new civilization-level operating system called Game B. It's not too late to intervene on our own and everything's behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. One of my best friends messaged me on Signal the other night saying, I finally caved in and got the Oculus. And my favorite part was where he says, considering how little is available to do out there in the real world, this is going to be a game changer. And I couldn't help but think that his hermetically sealed, COVID-inspired techno-paradise was now complete. Between uh, VR and Amazon and Fresh Direct and Netflix and a sustainable income doing web services and little crypto trading, he is going to ride out the pandemic in style. And I agree that, you know, VR porn is certainly a safer sexual strategy in the age of COVID than meeting up with somebody through Tinder. I can't help but wonder if the threat of infection is less the reason for his newfound embrace of virtual insulation than it is the excuse. Has digital technology been urging us to isolate all along? Is that the real agenda embedded in this stuff? Is it really COVID inspiring this whole new drive towards screens over contact and remote learning pods over public education and the, the relegation of undesirable tasks to the poor and the widespread retreat of privileged people to vacation homes protected by doorbell surveillance cameras? Or is the pandemic simply helping to justify it? Have we been always prepping for this? Well, that's the message I got back when I was hired by those billionaires who wanted me to water test their doomsday bunker strategies. At the time, I saw all of their paranoid prepping as some kind of a misplaced guilt over what they were doing to the world, that on some level they understood that they were in a trap and building these heinously extractive companies in order to earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality they were creating by earning money in that way. So instead of figuring out how to get away from the rest of us, I asked them, why wouldn't they maybe just focus on making the world a place that they wouldn't have to escape from? But I don't think that they are aspiring to live in this walking dead universe because they're horrible people, or at least not 
exclusively because they're horrible people. They're simply succumbing to the dominant ethos of the digital age, which is to design one's personal reality so meticulously that existential threats are simply removed from the equation. This leap from Fitbit tracking your heart to an annual full-body cancer scan, or from a few little cheap, wise surveillance cameras to a network of autonomous robot sentries. It's just a matter of money. No matter the level of existential security, the Netflix shows we all stream are the same. Now, pandemics, they they don't bring out our best instincts. No matter how many mutual aid networks and food pantries in which we participate, I think many of us privileged enough to do so are still making an internal calculation of how much are we allowed to use whatever wealth and privilege and technologies we do have to insulate ourselves from the rest of the world. Many of us don't like who we've become in this pandemic, but we feel little freedom to do otherwise. I mean, I'm getting paid as a professor at CUNY, so I was free to donate my government relief check to the local food pantry, and I'm sending a bunch of my income to friends who can't meet their basic expenses anymore. But I also went and spent gosh, like $700 on a big plastic pool for my daughter and our neighbor's kids to use as this basis for kind of a makeshift private summer camp. And I've seen these little bubble pools all over town. Now, the pool, it wouldn't have gotten here without legions of Amazon workers behind the scenes getting infected in warehouses and risking their health driving delivery trucks, like with Fresh Direct and Instacart all the externalized harm to people and places, it's kept out of sight. All along, these apps were designed to be addictively fast and self-contained, this kind of push-button access to stuff that can just be left at the front door without any human contact. They don't even ring the bell, right? It's like Thomas Jefferson's dumbwaiter, where the stuff just arrives without any human hands involved. And a lot of people, I mean, I swore off Amazon before, and now I'm finding myself using it, even though I know they have anti-competitive practices and they abuse their labor. But boy, the prime delivery really does work when you're in a pinch and need toilet paper or whatever you can't get. And I don't think I'm doing it so terribly, but I'm reading articles. There's an article in the New York Times that's got a photo spread of these wealthy families who are retreating to their their second homes, these summer residences that are bigger than anything you or I live in, I promise. And they're happy working remotely from the beach on the Hamptons and retrofitting their extra bedrooms as offices. This one article had this quote from a, a venture fund founder, and he said, it's been great. If I didn't know there was absolute chaos in the world, I could do this forever. And that was what got me thinking. If I didn't know there was absolute chaos in the world, I could do this forever. Well, what if we don't have to know about the chaos in the world? That's the real promise of digital technology, that we can choose which cable news, which Twitter feeds, which YouTube channels to stream. The ones that acknowledge the virus and its impacts or the ones that don't. 
we can choose to continue wrestling with the civic challenge of this moment, like whether to send our kids back to school full-time or hybrid or remotely, or like some of the wealthiest people in my own town, we can form private pods, hire tutors, offer our kids the customized elite education that we couldn't justify otherwise. Yes, there was this other article in the Times. Yes, we're in a pandemic, one of these uh, uh, pod education providers said. And then he says, but when it comes to education, we also feel some good may even come out of this. Right, good. What's the good? The good that you got to send your kid to private school that you wouldn't have done otherwise, but because of COVID now, you're going to spend all this extra money and they're going to get this super elite private thing. I get it. And if I had younger kids and could afford this stuff, I might even be tempted to avail myself of them. I know people, they've moved to Canada or Europe on the logic that their kids shouldn't be sacrificed to their parents' progressive sense of shame about escaping. The parents have jobs that they can do remotely, and then they're justifying that they're relieving the overburdened public schools of a few more bodies. But all of these solutions, they really favor people who've accepted that false promise of digital tech to provide what the real world has failed to do, like day traders. They already discovered the power of the net to let them earn incomes safely from home using nothing but a laptop and providing no value whatsoever to anybody. Meanwhile, it's the the world's most successful social media posses. They're holding up in estates in L.A. and Hawaii and doing their exercise routines and live streaming their lifestyles and their sex advice and the, the products of their sponsors. And maybe it's them, you know, these young social media enthusiasts who are thriving more than ever because they most explicitly embody that original promise of digital tech to provide for our every need. Just get a TikTok account, dance some dances, and someone's going to throw you money for dancing with a pack of gum. And I remember, I remember back around 1990 when Timothy Leary had first read Stuart Brand's book, The Media Lab. It was about the Media Lab at MIT, this new technology center. And Tim had devoured the book. And I remember when he was done with it, we were sitting there all day in his living room, and he's reading this book, reading this book. And then he finishes it, and when he closes the back cover, he like takes a breath, and then he just throws it across the room, like really mad. And he says, look at the index. All of the names, less than 3% are women. That'll tell you something. And he went on to explain that his problem with the Media Lab and the digital universe that these tech pioneers were envisioning back in the 80s was that, he said, they want to recreate the womb. That the boys building our digital future were trying to use tech to simulate the ideal woman, the one that their mothers could never be, right? Because unlike the human mother who failed them, a predictive algorithm, it could anticipate their every need in advance and deliver it directly, remove every trace of friction and longing. These guys would just be able to float in their virtual bubbles, what the Media Lab called artificial ecology, and they'd never have to face the messy, harsh reality demanded of people living in the real world with women and people of color and even those with differing views. 
because there's the real rub with digital isolation. The problem is billionaires identified when they were gaming out their bunker strategies. The people and things we'd be leaving behind, they're still out there. And the more we ask them to service our bubbles, the more oppressed and angry they're going to get. No matter how far Ray Kurzweil gets with his AI project at Google, we can't simply rise from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness. There's no Dropbox plan that'll let us upload body and soul to the cloud. We're still here on the ground with the same people on the same planet we're being encouraged to leave behind. There is no escape from the others. Not that people aren't trying. The ultimate digital escape fantasy would require some seriously perverse enforcement of privilege. Anything to prevent the unwashed masses, the folks still working in the meat processing plants and the Amazon warehouses from violating the sacred bounds of our virtual amnionic sacks. Sure, we can replace the factory workers with robots and the delivery people with drones, but then they'll have even less at stake in maintaining our digital retreats. And that's the way I see the dismantling of the post office now, as this last-ditch attempt to keep the majority from piercing the bubbles of the digitally privileged through something as simple as voting. Right? Climb to safety and then pull the ladder up after ourselves. No more voting. No more subsidized delivery of alternative journalism. That was the original purpose for a, a postal system in the Constitution. But so much the better for the algorithm streaming us their picture of the world, the one they want us to see, uncorrupted by imagery of what's really happening out there. And if something does kind of peek through, just swipe left and you'll never have to look at it again. No. I mean, of course we'll never really get there. We're not going to get our virtual womb. Climate, poverty, disease, and famine, they don't respect the, the guardian boundary play space defined by the Oculus Rift's VR user preferences. Just as the billionaires can never, ever truly leave humanity behind, none of us can climb back into the womb. When times are hard, sure. Take what peace and comfort you can afford. Use whatever tech you can get your hands on to make your kids' online education work a bit better. Enjoy the glut of streaming media that was left over from the heyday of the Netflix, Amazon, HBO wars. But don't let this passing, yes, passing crisis, fool you into buying technology's false promise of escape from humanity to play video games alone in perpetuity. Our COVID isolation is giving us a rare opportunity to see where this road takes us and to choose to use our technologies to take a very different one. This week, I'm speaking to the former CEO of Network Solutions, chair of the Santa Fe Institute and complexity theorist, Jim Rutt. Jim and some other truly bright folks from the tech, philosophy, and change community have been thinking up this thing they're calling Game B. Now, to be honest, I've always had issues with the approach that these mostly white, successful tech people take to fixing the planet's problems. But at the same time, I appreciate their intentions and respect that as far as the bigger systems through which our civilization operates, they may understand some things that I don't. So this conversation is kind of the 
polar opposite of the one I did with Nora Bateson a couple of weeks ago. It's about a new civilization-wide operating system they want to invent or or develop called Game B. It's a replacement for Game A, which is the extractive global industrial capitalism that's going to get us all killed if we don't arrest it. And what I like about it is the way it calls for humans to return to smaller local groups, what they're calling Dunbars, which is a name that's named after the British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who figured out that the cognitive limit for a person's stable social relationships is about 150 people. So 150 is the Dunbar number or a Dunbar group that Jim's referring to in this conversation. And they're imagining us all living in these 150-person communities communities, working in cottage industries that are all networked to one another and much, much less taxing on the environment. And I like that stuff. But while Jim and his peers are definitely against racism and the oppression of indigenous people, they've got a full steam ahead approach to change, this future focus that may not be fully acknowledging what happened the last time a bunch of smart, technologically superior white guys decided to build a better future. But it may also be an example of how the Western white male enthusiasm can now contribute to positive change rather than destructive colonialism. I should also warn you, Jim's particularly annoyed by certain forms of wokeness, which he feels are impeding our ability to work together and solve on-the-ground problems. I push back a bit on this and some of the other things Jim says, but sometimes I just let them go in hopes of connecting on other levels. I will be doing a show on how some of the academic postmodern roots of wokeness may actually be hampering the social justice movement on the ground that they're meant to support. But this week, please accept this as an encounter between two very different approaches to restoring society and a good faith effort by both to hear the other. First and most importantly, your granddad. Yeah, big thing, big life change. All my friends who have gone through it before said it it would be, and I, I was like, maybe it will, maybe it won't. It is to see that new, beautiful little girl. You know, I've been dedicating my life for the last 10 years or more to trying to save the world. I mean, I hate to be quite so melodramatic about it. And seeing that little girl there with probably 80 or 90 more years ahead of her, uh, it just gave me a tremendous amount of more energy and, uh, you know, got to get it done. God damn it. Save the world for the new baby. Interesting. I mean, I go into that space a lot myself. I mean, do you believe when you look at her that she's going to get to live out her natural life? Truthfully, uh, as Winston Churchill said, optimism is the only reasonable policy. And uh, not what I would also say, hey, you know, I'm at least a semi-prepper. And so if it goes south, uh, I'll protect mine and uh, my family, right? I hope it doesn't come to it. But I am optimistic that uh, humans at the end of the day, after they've expended every other option, more often than not, end up doing something that's tolerable. We face a tremendous number of challenges. It's called in the Game B world, the meta crisis. You know, at one hand, we have greed and weapons and thirst for power, you know, that make us uh, 
quite capable of destroying ourselves or at least destroying advanced civilization. We have our are now playing with technologies, you know, think about things like CRISPR and artificial general intelligence, human level and beyond, where we could destroy ourselves by accident. This is the first time in 200,000 years of human history where we could just sort of accidentally ourselves up. You know, the game A inability to consider nature as the primary support mechanism for us all could easily lead us to ignore the fragility of nature, reach some tipping point, whether it's through climate change, soil erosion, knocking out a key part of the population of the food cycle, bees being a good possibility. And we can end up destroying ourselves by destroying our environment. And then here's a new one. And you know, I have to admit, I was a skeptic on this for a while, that our irresponsible use of communications uh, is taking us to a point where we are destroying our ability to actually understand and to act in a reasonable fashion. So, you know, these four different ways of game A coming to a catastrophic end, are, we're, we, have to, we have to beat all four of them if we're going to make it on. And if this right. beautiful new child is going to have not only a life, but a glorious life. And a glorious life is within the grasp of the human race. I think it'd be interesting for people to understand kind of who you are if they don't yet. I guess when I found out about you, you were CEO of the Santa Fe Institute, which is sort of the theoretical and application center for uh, systems theory. I would reframe that and call it, it what we call it ourselves, the uh, home of complexity science. I mean, it's related to and is a follow-on to systems thinking, but I believe it's way more sophisticated. And in particular, one of the things you learn if you become uh, seriously involved in complexity science is that trying to predict the unfolding of a complex system, if you perturb it, uh, is damn near impossible. And so I am not a person that believes you can engineer the, oper the social operating system of the future. I would say the insights we get from complexity science are that you can nudge and do probes and do experiments and learn and adapt, but the world will, a complex system will unfold in ways that are literally, uh, in any practical sense, unpredictable. Right, which is why then you need to employ, I guess, what you've been calling this epistemic modesty when you're when you're nudging one of these systems. Absolutely, and uh, and that's why I recoil in horror uh, from things like the uh, postmodernist wokeism, uh, which is essentially a self-contained theory of everything that specifically disallows testing the assumptions. You know, that's the road to totalitarianism. Because the problem is testing assumptions or asking questions becomes framed as an act of violence or something. Or heresy. It's the same as medieval Catholicism or Marxist-Leninism. All three of them have the same unfalsifiability about their doctrine, where it literally says, if you try to falsify your doctrine, you're the enemy of the people. And that's insanity. Well, it's not the wokeness itself, though, that is the problem. But waking up and seeing racial injustice and all that is important. I think the problem is it feels to me like the environment itself that we're in is fascist or totalitarian. So even if you go, if you go on the QAnon, you know, black pill side or on the woke side, you end up getting pushed to this um, uh, extreme religiosity, exactly. which kind of shuts down genuine human thinking. Yeah, look at the 20th century. I like to point this out to people that uh, the real dimensions isn't left-right. It's 
authoritarianism versus liberalism. You know, the big conflicts of the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War uh, were a mixed bag between uh, right authoritarianism in World War II one for sure, kind of a weird hybrid in World War II. I mean, the Nazis were indeed socialists at some level, but they were also fascists, which is a weird combo. And then the Cold War was against left-wing authoritarianism. And so what I point out to people is, don't say the alternative to woke is neo-reactionaryism. Those are even worse, probably. Uh, the alternative is not the right and the left. The, the alternatives are between authoritarianism and totalitarianism on one side, and I would like to uh, use the term universal liberal humanitarianism uh, as the alternative. Yeah, but universal humanitarianism, or what we Jews used to call you know, universal social justice, is now itself considered a bad thing. Universal social justice is sort of what Bernie was looking for. And that was considered racist because it wasn't acknowledging the particular crimes that have been done to particular intersections. And I just don't know how we're going to be able to do that. It feels to me like making the world a better place for everyone is the shortest path to to a systemic solution or to a complex solution rather than these, you know, frankly, these artificial white Western, you know, false divisions between people along, you know, mythical racist boundaries. Yeah, exactly. Let me kick this up a level, if you don't mind, to a really key issue. We live in a world which has gotten very complicated very rapidly since about 1980. What I've been pushing for some time is that the complicatedness, not the complexity, but the complicatedness of our lives, one, is is probably unnecessary, it should be simplified, but second, is beyond the ability of almost anybody to process intelligently. So we need to start relying upon group sense-making, and it probably should be in relatively small groups. So I've now have conversations once a week with a group of five people that we can talk about anything that's bothering us or that needs other people to help think about. And one could imagine a series of interlocking uh, cells. Think of them almost like the uh, the hexagon pattern in a beehive, uh, where I have my five, six, or seven people. I think seven's the magic number. You have your seven. We have a little bit of overlap between us, but most of them go off to other groups. Uh, and we collectively try to process the complicatedness of the world to make good decisions and to filter out bad information. Because remember, number four of my ways we can kill ourselves is so polluting our meme space that we become incapable of making sense of the world. It strikes me that uh, our cognitive abilities, if you know, reasonably experienced and reasonably intelligent people like ourselves are suffering from this, uh, people with less experience and frankly less cognitive horsepower, they've got to be suffering tremendously from the inability to make sense of the world and make good decisions. They're being exploited by yeah. you know, machine learning and advertising and uh, hyper-financialized capitalism. Yeah, that's a lot of what my work is about, is the the disorientation and uh, decalibration that results from being under constant cognitive attack, you know, by these sort of non-player character algorithms and advertisements. And uh, it's not even just bots, but people who are, you know, using really state-of-the-art behavioral finance mixed with machine learning to decalibrate the human nervous system. And then, then we're supposed to walk around and make friends and make sense, you know, <laughs> when we're in that traumatized state. 
it's really hard. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you don't care how smart you are. You ain't as smart as the machine learning behind Facebook, right, or Google, right? It's one of the reasons I, every year, take a six-month break from social media. And I tell you what, my brain is a load clearer than it was then. <laughs> Right, because no matter how smart you are, if your frontal lobe has been paralyzed, you know, by by social media, it's not going to flutter. You know, you're not going to get anything out of it. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm interested in that in looking, and it's funny. I just had uh, Nora Bateson on Team Human, and she, like me, we get sometimes triggered when we talk to folks who are involved in the kind of the game A, game B thing, and that it feels like it's not epistemic modesty. Sometimes it feels like from the outside, when sometimes when we look at, say, Tristan Harris and the and the humane tech movement talking about upscaling or upgrading humans and the rebel wisdom guys in Europe talking about uh, how to improve humanity and uh, move to a new model, it feels sometimes like, okay, it's the same kind of white dudes that got us in this mess are now coming up with a big top-down approach to remaking humanity as if it were a SimCity reboot. And when I read you and talk to you, it doesn't seem like that's what you're advocating at all, Um, that you're thinking about something much slower and iterative and bottom-up and people-driven, almost more indigenous than it is colonial. So I'm hoping maybe you could kind of walk us through what Game B is. My view is that Game A really started in the at the very end of the 17th century, with particularly the establishment of the Bank of England in 1694, uh, which is essentially the template for our monetary and financial system that we have today. At the same time, modern science was just being invented. That was the, the epoch of Newton and Boyle and those guys, uh, and then was soon followed in the 18th century by the Enlightenment, which to my mind is still the best model we have of how to think about the world. Uh, I'm an Enlightenment Dude, I do believe we have to actually live up to the values of the Enlightenment. We haven't always done so. So, and then, you know, again, as the power of finance and science kind of worked themselves through for a hundred and some years, then we stumbled on fossil fuels and that changed everything. You know, people forget that the U.S. Constitution was written, uh, was ratified in 1789, written about 1787, uh, at a time before there were any fossil fuel usage in the United United States or in North America at all. The first coal was not mined in North America until 1804. So our social operating system of the U.S. Constitution was designed in the pre-fossil fuel era. Uh, And that is a qualitatively different era than that which followed. From about 1800, very rapidly, humanity's energy consumption uh, started to very quickly grow to to the point where it was way, way faster than nature uh, was rebuilding it. You know, that coal that was laid down was laid down over, I don't know, a couple hundred million years. The oil maybe even for longer than that. And we've been sucking it out of the ground at an unbelievably prodigious rate completely upsetting the balance of of our atmosphere, 
but at the same time, building a civilization of very surprising capability. If you look at the, you know, the long line of social evolution going back 12,000 years to the first urban setting, which was probably something like Jericho, uh, and look at, uh, you know, contemporary Shanghai, say, which is the closest thing probably to a state-of-the-art city, it's unbelievably more information processing, resource processing, uh, stuff happening, people moving around, uh, et cetera. And a big part of that was uh, powered by our, our fossil fuels. But while Game A was a, it has been, indeed was, a gigantic uh, increase in capability for the human race made human life way better. You know, the improvement in the human condition driven by game A, driven by finance and science and technology was astounding. But where game A is broken because it was never built into the system is it has no breaks. It never even realized that there were limits to growth, right? Maybe the first hints of it were Rachel Carson in 1962, the silent spring and the early parts of the environmental movement and the club of Rome in the seventies where slowly some people, a few of us started to realize uh, that there are limits to growth and that, you know, technologies are now gotten so much more powerful than us. And now we've gotten to the point that was we talked about earlier that our communication systems themselves may be sufficiently poisonous with this uh, frontal lobe poisoning that you talked about to make our sense making so bad that we could uh, that we could fall apart. My vision of Game B, and I believe I would say all of Game B uh, agrees with this, uh, is that the most deplorable part of, uh, say, the post-1975 world was that honesty and good faith had become sucker strategies. Even in business prior to 1975, there was still a fair amount of honesty and good faith. And I was lucky enough to work to some companies just after 1975 where that still existed. Uh, but by 2008, uh, the ethos of the West had become not honesty and good faith, but is it arguably legal and profitable. If so, we'll do it. In fact, probably by 2008, it'd gone even further, which was, if I got get caught doing it, is the penalty greater or less than the profit I will make? And an ethos like that is just evil. It's the root of all evil. Uh, and, money, and money drives that, but it isn't itself it. Uh, and so honesty and good faith must come first and must not be uh, sucker strategies. And in fact, people who are of honesty and good faith are the only people who should high, have high status. Next, uh, we realize that this corruption of honesty and, and good faith, a lot of it came from hierarchical command and control systems. So what I call the four pillars of game B, it must be... Uh, Everything in game B must self-organize. Uh, it's not top-down. It's likely to be network-oriented. That's one of the good things we've gotten out of the late game A is we now have ubiquitous network networking of all kinds, right? Social media, but also uh, blockchains, public ledgers, uh, private uh, conferencing systems, uh, Discord servers. You know, it's just an amazing number of tools. So let's use them to build a network-oriented uh, future. Uh, third, decentralization. The fact that we are so heavily interdependent is dangerous, right? When our masks are all made in Milan, right? And all of our vaccine bottles are made in two cities in China. This is extremely dangerous. And so we should have de uh, decentralization needs to be key. And then 
going to our self-termination issues of game A, uh, game B must be metastable for at least hundreds of years. And by metastable, I don't mean a rigid formula from the catechism, but it must be able to be adaptive to what it learns through epistemic modesty to be able to change itself through honesty and good faith, self-organization, network orientation, decentralization, to remain a coherent civilization for at least hundreds of years. And uh, so, so that's game B at kind of its conceptual level. In my view, uh, the way to get started with game B, when currently we're in what we call I call the pre-B era. We're, we're thinking and talking and meeting each other, uh, working on ourselves and learning some skills. But great game B will actually come into being when we create the first proto-Bs. And that's when a coherent group of people attempt to live together as a whole. But it won't be complete initially, obviously, the first proto-B communities, which might be 20 people, might be 50 people, might be 150 people, uh, some relatively small number of people. And it won't be complete. We're not going to be developing our own computer chips or even our own cars. Uh, But we'll attempt to live a whole game B life. And we'll have an interface uh, to game A. Uh, In some of my work in complexity science, one of my favorite areas is uh, looking at systems that have membranes that are semi-permeable, meaning stuff can come in and come out, but we have rules about what comes in and comes out. A living cell is a perfect example of a uh, membrane-contained system that's semi-permeable. Uh, you know, it lets stuff in, lets stuff out. And what it lets in, what it let, lets out is uh, very important. Uh, Further, we expect there to be multiple proto-Bs with different constitutions. Uh, We expect each proto-B to have a constitution, which is the rules it lives by, uh, and we expect those to vary, some considerably, but there'll be a coherent core of of the two bases and the four pillars, and I refer to that idea as coherent pluralism, Uh, and I think that's really important uh, that we get back to honoring pluralism as a core value. And again, uh, I'm an Enlightenment guy. uh, And one of the neglected but important documents of the Enlightenment was the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, written by both James Madison, the author of the Constitution, and Thomas Jefferson, the author of the uh, Declaration. It was written in the uh, late uh, 1770s was finally ratified in 1785, and it is very radical uh, phase change in the world. Uh, it, is, it is still the law in Virginia uh, that you have absolute freedom of conscience when it comes to metaphysical stuff. We have to return to that. We cannot dictate how people must think. Uh, but at the same time, we have to have a, a, a an inner core of honesty and good faith and and all the other things uh, uh, that we talked about. I mean, and this is where I guess this movement as such runs into some trouble. So, I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like a, a kind of a new kibbutz movement, right? Exactly. Networked, a network kibbutzim. But it's also kind of an anarcho-syndicalism. I yep. mean, where... You know, not and not in a bad way, but small cottage industries and towns where people have actual skills and local resilience and they create value and then trade the value they create with neighboring ones and long distance ones. And you know, you 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 figure it out, but you're you're way more resilient, you're way closer to the ground, you're not depending for most things, you're not depending on giant, complicated, artificially long distance supply chains, right? We're not shipping shrimp 
across the world to have it deboned or whatever, and then shipped all the way back where we're, you know, thinking smarter. But the part of it that then I think aggravates people is what we're calling or you're calling pluralism and open-mindedness and all, I think a, a lot of folks, particularly folks who feel like they've been oppressed by the, 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 impure form of enlightenment that that's been been running America and the West for so long that they feel oh wait a minute now you're just gonna go to this plan B but but I'm mad this bad stuff was done to me and my people for the last 500 years and now we're just gonna ignore that and start building little communities I, you know what I mean I think they feel like this is a bunch of privileged white like Stanford and MIT graduates, you know, people who were in the technology industry who are used to game, are used to SimCity, are used to building networks out, and that in some ways that the complexity people are oversimplifying the legacy issues that that we're all dealing with today. Yeah. You know, that is a uh, complaint that we have heard about Game B. And I guess my response to that is, you know, truthfully, it's been my attitude about life in general is look forward, don't look back, mother. Right. When I hear people whine about their upbringing or something, I go, there's a reason we call it the past. God damn it. Get over it, people. It's the past. Right. It is and it's not. I mean, it's the past, but it's also to the person being raised in the project who doesn't have the same opportunity as as my daughter. It doesn't feel like the past. It feels like the or the weight of the past is is weighing down uh, is weighing down the present. And as technologists, and I guess I consider myself at least a tech sympathizer, we tend to have this this Western sort of westward looking newness novelty approach, where you know what I mean. It's like all right, let's just build a different kind of vehicle then. Or let's, you know, that that Elon Musk-like, always looking at the Western horizon, we tend to ignore what we've just done. You know, so we look at movies about robot slaves that are having revolutions, which are all, to me, feel like metaphors for sort of white Western guilt over slavery in America. It feels like we're trying to build a car that goes fast enough to escape from our own exhaust. That game B is partly about, and I know you don't mean it this way, but it's partly about keeping things going. If we always look in the future, we never have to deal with the karmic effects of what we've just, what we've just done. Yeah, I like. I guess I am that way. I believe that the impact of the past is way less than people think it is, and that the ability to change is relatively large. So, for instance, we are radically committed to rooting out racism, for instance, and sexism in Game B. Not going to be tolerated. Period. Uh, we understand. I understand. Uh, quite well, the science of implicit racism. It's real. So we are going to be well informed about these things as we create our proto-bees. Some of them at least, and and the one that I'm looking to uh, launch sometime as soon as this virus is over, are going to be relatively radically egalitarian like kibbutzes, maybe more like modern kibbutzes than the original ones. So let's say we launch proto-bees based on a quasi-kibbutzian, quasi-Mennonite egalitarian model, right? And so the fact that black people were 
by redlining with respect to building family wealth becomes relatively irrelevant because we'll all have the same wealth to share and we'll even have the same income to share. And so a black person, black American, because you know the, the experience of being African in different places is quite different, but say an, a person of African ancestry in America whose ancestors were slaves and then were abused by Jim Crow and then abused by redlining and abused by uh, police, etc., who joins a proto-B will have an awful lot of that history erased. They will have the same economic basis as everybody else. Uh, they will be living in a community that is well-educated on the dangers of and will be doing exercises to purge implicit racism. So again, uh, I think the tale of the past is overrated and building systems of the future that are aware, particularly of the deep ideas that, that skew our thinking, like implicit racism, we can do much better, much faster uh, on repairing the damage done than we can about uh, whining about the past, frankly. Right. But the, from here to there is a tricky one. So the main things that you advise are, are kind of the things that I'm doing in Team Human. I mean, the the back cover of the book is find the others, right? Yep. And your first two steps really are first, find the others online, which what you could do right now in COVID. Then number two is find the others in real life uh, and then learn real skills, which yep. is a, one of the main features on this show is called Real People Doing Real Things, which started as a joke. The idea was I would search America to find a person who actually does something. <laughs> That's a real <laughs> actually, job. Exactly. Not just like mortgage, actuarial, accounting in a cubicle or marketing of fake finance products, but actually making something. And then sovereignty, which of course has many different meanings, but but developing, you know, sovereignty over self and, you know, over one's, you know, life and property. And some of the the methodologies are the same ones I use, whether, you know, what you're calling psychotechnologies, which, you know, include everything from from yoga to to LSD. And then building these Dunbars, these small groups that become your little bees. My suspicion is that game B is not a business or an only way. So in other words, some people will use game B and the knowledge from the game B community to create game B like things, but other people in other places will come to similar conclusions about, oh, we need to create smaller communities that create their own value. So they may end up utilizing many of the, of, of the same principles, either lifting them directly from what you're doing and adapting them to their situations or without any knowledge of game B at all. There could be, you know, Gamo Bayo people in, you know, New Guinea are already building things. Or I look at the uh, Orthodox Jews. There's a, a system called the Eruv where they basically, in, in cities, wherever they are, they create an artificial enclosure. So it's almost a ritualized version of a game B Dunbar. This is, in other words, that we create that space uh, around ourselves. You know, these things can happen in cities if we, if we bring some measure of consciousness to our activities. I agree. I think I have two levels of reaction there. First, one of the key concepts of game B is we call X in a box, is that whenever any group attempts something and is successful at it, we're going to encourage them to create documentation on it, which will be put in the public domain, both for other game B players, but as you point out, for anybody else to lift. Like, for instance, suppose we figure out uh, how to do really good charter school in the state of Virginia, which has got kind of 
up charter school uh, rules, for instance. That should be documented and put out so that anybody, game B or otherwise, can lower the activation energy of doing a really good charter school in the state of Virginia. Uh, let's say we figure out how to do a time bank in a community that includes a Proto B, but also the surrounding community. We will document that, including the software, make it a free gift to the world, and not just to game B people, but to anybody else. Now, the second point, and this is something where I'm starting to spend more time. This was something that was in the original Game B manifestos back in 2013, but we didn't haven't spent much time on it until recently, uh, which is you're absolutely right. Game B is just one of many people doing the good work. And uh, the way I frame that is I call it the Big Change Coalition. There are a growing number of people, and one of our doctrines in Game B is that COVID has opened many ears to hear, probably by a factor of 10. Uh, so we're going to expect a big growth in all kinds of people uh, struggling to get out of game A towards what comes next. And they will try different things. And we should watch each other. We should borrow from each other. We should not be dogmatic. Uh, and we should employ epistemic modesty to essentially the way bacteria do, share our DNA horizontally. And so eventually somebody figures it out, kind of, uh, and it may be game B, it may be one of these other efforts, kind of in the same way that in the Cambrian explosion, multicellular life was finally figured out about 500 million years ago. And uh, all the advanced life we have today is a descendant of that one very interesting uh, new technology. Uh, so that's, that's how I would respond at, at sort of two levels. One, that all of us should be sharing what we know, and two, uh, we should be not dogmatic about our particular flavor, but we should move together knowing that we're moving more or less in the same direction. And I mean, I guess the part I would push back on is the idea, and, and, and I agree and disagree, that this is the cutting edge stuff, you know, and because it's cutting edge, you know, the, the people who can kind of afford to spend time and energy on cutting edge things can come. This is cutting edge for, maybe it's cutting edge for white Western people from you know, it, it raised in a capitalist society, but this is just a retrieval of a lot of the mutual aid and community self-service that you know African Americans were doing since they were slaves. You know, the mutual aid banks and yeah. uh, credit unions, and I just uh, read a great book on uh, black economic cooperativism in America since the 1700s. You know, and they were. They were doing it. That's why they were so successful in Tulsa, because they were cut off from the larger economy. They had to create smaller, circular community economies that thrived. Yep, yep that's true. So in some ways, what we're doing is retrieving things. And I know you don't care about credit, which is a, <laughs> important too these days, because who did what to whom? But we're not inventing the wheel here. We are piecing together things that many of them are very old. Yep, some are and some aren't, right? Uh, you know, for instance, self-organization is what humans have been doing since 300,000 years ago, right? How was it that hunter-gatherer bands right. operated? What we're doing is taking piece parts that have previously existed, some things that have never existed before, and uh, some new capabilities that have never existed before, and blending them together in a pragmatic, experimental, uh, epistemically modest way to craft what comes next. So to say, yes, some of it's going to be ideas that are 200,000 years old. Some of them will be ideas that were uh, invented uh, 15 minutes ago, and it will be a thoughtful blend, it, but it will be moving forward, uh, not obsessing with looking back. Right. And moving forward in what feels like, if anything, a, a post-industrial 
way, that these are not one-size-fits-all solutions to then export to to the rest of the planet, but rather, uh, I mean, the beauty of giving people fishing poles instead of uh, fish is that they can all develop their own versions of fishing poles, you know, that are appropriate to their, their culture, their society and their, and their terrain, the actual environment that they're living in. You know, these are distributed, diverse solution sets. Yeah. It's a, it's a swarm through configuration space. You know, I, as again, I very strongly believe that there will be many proto bees that uh, have different rules of the road, quite different rules of the road, due to things like physical location, uh, what country they live in, you know, their local cultures, all kinds of stuff. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, I am an enemy of people who try to have these one-size-fits-all ideologies, right, that aren't subject to experiment and local adaptation. Probably the systems that we're looking at are kind of fractal uh, in that we'll have a lot of stuff very local, and then we'll have kind of the equivalent of proto bees scattered around an area but they all use the same constitution but they're but they're independent right and then the constitutions will start to vary and then there'll be other proto bees with different constitutions and then there'll be mergers i mean the the history of kibbutzes right. is very interesting there were have been various kibbutz movements right and there've been mergers between them individual kibbutzes have moved from one movement to another it's actually extraordinarily interesting and probably recapitulates what proto bee will do the thing that's staying with me emotionally i guess is i mean i share some of your uh, frustration with wokeness as a movement um, because of where where it's gone and how difficult it can make certain kinds of of conversations and progress and on the other hand i wonder is the best way to deal with wokeness and the woke community by being so mad in other words <laughs> every time we've talked about wokeness you'll say like oh and f- their f- wokeness f- i mean <laughs> is is that going to break them in the fold so if the, if the woke people hate you know Jordan and Daniel and Jordan and Jamie and you or or Sam Harris, whoever they're going to hate, or Joe Rogan. What's the best path forward to help kind of de-escalate this tension? I understand how to do it with red state Trump people with MAGA hats better than I understand how to do it with, I guess, my own side of more more extreme progressives. With the red state people, I know just engage in mutual aid with them, and they're going to start practicing leftism before they know what it's called. I mean, that's that's easy because they're, they're, it's easy to get farmers in a co-op and it's like, oh, good, you're doing it. I don't care. Don't don't worry what it's called. Just keep doing it. What do you see as the, as the best path forward with the kind of wokeism that's, that you see as kind of a, an impediment to developing a good universal game B? Uh, my stipulation is those who are actually infected by uh, the postmodern disease are probably no more than one to three percent of the population. Uh, those who studied humanities at elite universities uh, in the last 25 years. However, there's kind of a flattened, cheapened version of this, which is now called wokeism or critical race theory or intersectionality, that has spread because it's a pretty clever mimetic virus, and it's probably infected 15 or 20 percent of the population 
population. So the first group, I consider them just flat-out enemies, just as I would Nazis or Marxist-Leninists, and they just should be resisted. Their theory is bad. It's it's totalitarian. It's unfalsifiable. Uh, it's you know very much like Marxist-Leninism or medieval Catholicism. So I'm going to fight that tooth and nail. Right. And for people that don't know that what you're talking about there, basically you're saying that there was, you know, postmodernism, which came out of the 50s and 60s and was a, a philosophical school. Um, it led to this idea kind of, of of ontological relativism, where nothing is real, nothing is verifiable on the ground, that everything is sort of how we perceive it, and that the struggle as such is this sort of mimetic ideational competition, almost like an art competition or a dance competition for, you know, which thought structure ends up dominating which other one. But the problem with it is it became kind of so untethered from on the ground reality that it was really dangerous to apply postmodernism to real things like social justice, because now you're taking an art school technique and using it as an on-the-ground activist technique. So now language starts to matter more than circumstance. What are you calling something? How are you framing this thing? So you end up in this really abstracted place. And in critical theory in the universities, you end up with people who then have this kind of life or death kind of racist stakes around uses of language that are pretty friggin' abstract and disconnected to the real lived economic and social experience of the people that you're supposedly advocating for. I'd say I'm just going to resist the theorists, the one to 3%, putting them in the same bag as Nazis or communists. I'm just not going to engage with them. Uh, I'm going to promote ideas like James Lindsay, uh, Brett Weinstein, Heather McDonald, et cetera, people who've done uh, serious thinking in exposing the corruption underneath uh, wokeism uh, so that over time we can seduce the 15% who have been infected by the mind virus back to where they belong and where they used to live, which is uh, universal liberal humanitarianism. It was liberal, it was universal liberal humanitarianism that won the civil rights battles of the 60s. It was universal liberal humanitarianism, which took the unbelievably rapid granting of full uh, civil rights to uh, gay people, right? If you had asked anybody in 1975 whether we'd have a gay marriage by 2020, they would have said, you're the man from Mars. And yet it happened relatively rapidly and relatively painlessly. And so I think we just relentlessly remind people that there is a an alternative that has all the good values that you want uh, without the insane and evil totalitarian nature of this denatured postmodernism. So we just seduce away the 15% uh, by standing firm with universal liberal humanitarianism, and also, by the way, rejecting alt-rightism, neo-reactionaryism, and all that uh, evil right, and just stand our ground. Basically, think of it as like another Cold War. Eventually, it'll collapse of its own contradictions. What I was hoping that is, is if those of us involved in what you're calling game B, or I'm just calling, you know, team human, what they're all adjacent, kind of bottom up, relocalized, re-embodied life, that it'll just look like more fun to people. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you've read my stuff. You know that I push really hard conviviality, right? In fact, I have at least tentatively proposed, and I could be wrong about this, that 
if the glue that holds game A together, late game A, is competition for status through material possessions and positional goods, the uh, status around game B will be conviviality. Who knows how to have a good time, motherfucker? Who knows how to sing and dance and drink and make love and uh, play an instrument and and uh, and really be a social being? And and hence, and I know I, this offends especially wokers, but uh, I suppose it's not the best word. But I like to use the word that game B will seduce people into it. Uh, will not compel anybody into game B. You don't want to play game B? Don't play it. Right? Go play game A. But, uh, you know, we believe that over time we will demonstrate, we will show, not tell, that game B is a better way of life. And that will bring people in. Yeah, that was what Genesis Peoric used to say, that pleasure, pleasure is our greatest weapon. Exactly. (laughs) Conviviality. Let's have a good time. Let's not walk with our elbows in and look down at our feet when we walk. What the hell? Let's stop and have a conversation on the sidewalk or even on the subway, right? You know, let's learn how to live as actual humans. Uh, You know, I heard some guy call it team human. What a great idea. What a good name, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we look up from our phones for long enough to see the other people. So thanks and good luck. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun. You're doing a great job, Douglas. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Jim Rutt. You can find out more about Jim by listening to his podcast at jimruttshow.com or read his piece, A Journey to Game B, on medium.com, where you can also find written versions of most of my monologues at medium.com slash team human. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our last best hope for peeps.